Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and our guest today is Tony Award-winning book writer. Uh, He most recently won a Tony for Tootsie, the musical, and given his success, the story that he's telling uh, here in the episode is actually incredible, and I I don't want to give too much away, but um, was... His dad left, wouldn't support his mom. Mom went down some hard mental health issues, uh, went down a hard road, and and he was taken away from his twin sister, overcame so much, ended up in an apartment that he suspects, uh, sorry, snuck out of the, the orphanage and ended up in, a, in an apartment that he thinks was run by the mob. Uh, <laughs> just a really cool story that you got to hear for yourself. And among all of this, among all of his weird survival jobs, one of which is incredibly fun, he'll tell you about, he kept a great attitude and used this as a lot of comedians do, like a, a lot of pain and a lot of hardships and turn it into comedy. Cause once you discover you can make people laugh, uh, that's kind of a drug you get addicted to emotionally, I think. So anyway, find me online as you normally do, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening now. And everybody, please enjoy this episode with Robert Horn. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Here you go. One, two, three. Today's guest is a Tony, Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, and New York Drama Critics Circle award-winning book writer whose career began in film and television as a writer-producer on the iconic television series Designing Women, followed by the groundbreaking Fox series Living Single and the irreverent hit CBS comedy High Society, before being signed to an overall production deal with Warner Brothers Studios, where he developed, wrote, and executive produced dozens of network pilots and series. 
past Broadway credits include Dame Edna, Back with a Vengeance, 13 the Musical, and of course Tootsie. And now he has two new productions in the works, Disney's Hercules, which is now open at the Paper Mill Playhouse, and Shucked, which is just about to begin previews on March 8th here in New York City at the Nederlander Theater. Robert Horn, holy crap, welcome to the theater podcast. Well, my goodness, I... I fell asleep during all that. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, was it that? Like, that it's great to be I, here. No, I'm like, did I really do all that? Dude. At, at only 23? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> your your history, your history is incredible. And I, I love... Um, kind of the 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 progression of your career that you've made because I don't know how I don't know very many other people who who have started out in TV and film and been as successful as you have been in that world and then just been like I'm just going to go over here and do this other theater thing now and win Tonys and Drama Desk and all this other, all these other awards right like you just you just like whatever I'm going to do I'm going to do it so let's let's start back in in uh I guess moving to LA, right? And we can get into the, we'll get into the childhood stuff a little bit later. Cause that's, I know it's a little bit uh, more serious subject, but I want to start with some light stuff. And when you moved to LA, how did you just fall into the writing for, for TV and film? Cause I feel like everybody, everybody moves to LA to write or act. And so how did you like get over well, that, that hump? Well, it, I started off actually, I'm from New York. So I was, I was, I grew up in New York and wanted to be a playwright and, Sadly, I was the only one that wanted that. Nobody else seemed interested. And um, I ended up going to LA. Um, and I, I had just, it was a really rough time in New York, and I just had to get out of there for a while. So I went to LA just to see what would happen. And honestly, it was just, I kept, I pounded the pavements, and I was, I, I had no idea how to get started, what to do. And interestingly enough, it all happened. I had a friend. Who, um, whose partner at the time was in La Cage Faux on tour in LA. And I ended up rooming with him and he came, uh, I, and he came, my friend from New York came out and went to the beach and was hanging out with a bunch of people and they were looking for a joint. And they said, I know who will have a joint, Robert Horn. <laughs> and they came to my house and one of the one of the friends that they were with wa, uh, wanted to be a writer and was working at a network. He was working at his name was Dana Margosis, a wonderful writer, and he was working at um, CBS. And we said, "Hey, let's write something together." And we wrote a pilot. And at that time, because he worked at CBS, they had what's called writer first refusal, which is anything that you write, they have to see first. And we showed it to somebody up at there, and somebody read it and said, "Hey, do you guys have an agent?" And we said, "No." And they hooked us up with our first agent at ICM. And literally six months later, we had our first job and just started working. So it just was this kismet. It was this right person, right place, right time. And and we started. It was, wow. I mean, it was really, and there was a very interesting thing because we started, uh, we wrote a bunch of uh, one-offs. You know, we would get hired to do an episode of this, an episode of that. And then we got the opportunity to be on Designing Women and um, eventually showrun Designing Women. And, and it was crazy. Yeah. So what is a, what is a showrunner? Because I still, I know what it is and I still don't know what it is. Well, the showrunner, usually the showrunner is the person that created the show. We did not. That was Linda Bloodward Thomason and Harry Thomason. But is the person who basically runs the show. So it's, it's you know, you are in the, you're running the writer's room, you're casting, you're editing, you're 
you have the weekly task of getting that show going, getting next week's going, and fixing last week's at oh, so the that, same time. That's interesting because I thought I thought the showrunner was the person who was just ultimately responsible for the writers keeping a through line throughout a series. It, that's part of the job you you know when you start a season you arc out that season and you decide where you want to go over the course of the season and then you decide what stories you want to tell to get you from a to z and then you put a staff together that if you're smart is much better at the things that you're not good at than you are and you start then you just divide it up what writers are going to write what episodes and and then you ultimately will have the final say on those episodes, but they, you know, then you send people off to outline and script, and then you come together as a room and everybody gets a stab at it. And it's, it's, a, it's a crazy job. And you do it, in those days it was multicam. So there's not a lot of multicam left anymore, but you do it, you put it on a play every week. Every week you're doing a new episode and you sometimes have four days or five days to do the whole thing. It's insanity, but it's just glorious. It is a giant, sandbox with which to play in and you it uh, and it's really great training for theater ironically oh yeah that's a, that's what somebody uh i had a manager once back in the day and they were like oh yeah you, with your theater training i'm gonna put you up for all these sitcoms and i said oh okay cool so i, I totally get that parallel because yeah you're you're doing two maybe three or four takes in front of a live audience and that's it yeah. that's all you've got after a, yeah. a couple days of rehearsal and then dress rehearsal yeah. so yeah that makes total sense and what's really funny too is in working in theater, people, I'm a big rewriter and people are constantly amazed. I'll come in as the actors will tell you from the shows I do. Um, I'll come in with the 20 and 30 new pages every day or like 12 joke options for something. And people are amazed because that sort of isn't the, a lot of playwrights take a lot more time to be able to do that. But being weaned, weaned on television, you, get, you fix it right then and there. And, that, and you hone that skill rather quickly or you're, or you're kind of sunk. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because there have been a, there have been other writers that I've talked to that have that have been like, oh yeah, we'll go back and we'll have a couple weeks, or we'll have a day, or we'll come back the next morning. But no, you're you're coming in already no, with options. Are you me. are you are you then like <laughs> they hate you? Are you uh, upset when you, you come in with ten jokes and nine of them don't land, or do you, I mean you're like, oh man, these were all so good, or you're like this one crap and then. Um, you know, well, that's a good question. But what I try to do is be a little more myopic than that. In other words, if I come in for, with 12 jokes, it's usually not just freestanding jokes. It's what's the character, what's the situation. So more often than not, they will, half of them will work because they're right for the moment. Often when they don't work is when it's just like, hey, this is funny, but it really has nothing to do with what's going on. And then it won't work. But you try to really focus on what what the what the piece is asking or the character is asking of you at that moment i guess well yeah that makes sense as any good writer should do is and also <laughs> right and also the character if it often if the actor doesn't like the joke they'll tank it so so it won't go forward i'll be like got it. okay got it well so then we, we kind of teased this a little bit in the beginning, but um, your journey out to LA coming from New York was a little bit of a, a, a tumultuous one. Do you want to, I mean, because you were saying that like family, family home life I was reading was not so good. And then you came back to New York. I don't ever need to like what the most influential part of your past was. And I'll let you tell these stories, but like be, you came out as a teenager in the seventies in New York after Stonewall. And there was all these things that made you who you are now. So where, where do you want to begin and tell this story? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it's this, you know, I, I, uh, so as a kid, I grew up in New York. Um, as you talked about, my mom was a theater person. Uh, she grew up, she, as you said, she was uh, Ed Sullivan's, at that time they called them secretaries. Now it's, uh, they're it, her assistant, but her, his secretary. Um, and she was a theater girl. She grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and she loved theater. And she worked with, with Ed Sullivan and his wife, actually. And she did a lot of work working with the Broadway talent that would come on the show. So she would always go to theater. So at a very young age, she took me to theater. I think the first show I ever saw was a show called 70 Girl 70. It was a Kander and Ebb show um, that didn't really have a long life. And then after that, the original Fiddler on the Roof, when I was maybe, what, five, six years old. Wow. And so she introduced me to theater at a young age and I loved it. Um, and, you know, it was a, it, it, things, you know, my father left, I have a twin sister, a twin sister and, and an older brother. Um, and my father left when we were born and my mom, um, he left and wouldn't pay any alimony, he just disappeared. And it was really a challenge for my mom who at the time in her life suffered from depression, which in those days, they really didn't, no, they just medic. They just knocked you out. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand it the way they do, and it was very taboo to talk about. And so my mom struggled really hard to raise us, and she tried to work. And we were real. We were on welfare. And we we were really struggled, and ultimately uh, we were taken away from her um, and sent to live through an organization called the JCCA, which is the Jewish Childcare Association. We're sent. Um, my sister and I were separated, and I was sent to live um, in basically what you would call an orphanage or a, or a, a, a facility upstate New York called Pleasantville Cottage School, ironically. <laughs> um, and I, and when I was about nine, I, I, I went there and I, and I lived there and, and it was tough, but you know, I used humor as a way to survive. And I think that set the tone for realizing what I wanted to do with my life because humor was a survival mechanism. It was a way to emotionally deal with as a nine-year-old kid being separated from your family and from the closest person to, in the world to me was my twin sister. And also, in order to protect yourself because it was a kind of a rough place. And if you were funny, you didn't get the crap beat out of you. And so I sort of honed my comedic skills through those survival techniques. And also my grandfather was in vaudeville and, and he, as a very young kid would um, introduce me to, we watched great TV shows together and he introduced me to all that. And um, so I, and so like, I remember every year at, they you would you could get a, a holiday gift and i would always ask for like i want a book of neil simon's work or i want i would always it was something that had to do with comedy and then when i was about 13 or so a little over 13 i just ran away i didn't want to be there anymore i came and i kind of i ran to new york like you, you literally like, ran away i ran away yes wow um, but it was it was the 70s in new york it was a very very different time i lived for about uh four or five months in what's sort of like a halfway house, um, a group residence. And then, I, uh, and then I got an apartment. I was maybe just shy of 15, 14. I got an apartment. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. It was sort of, so I was walking around. I needed a place to live and I was walking around the village and there were these very sort of uh, Italian men sitting outside playing chess. They used to set up chess boards on the streets and they would play chess on the streets. And I asked one of these guys, do you know of any apartments that are available? And this guy said, come with me. It was all mob, it was all, it was all mob owned. And he showed me this apartment on Thompson Street and he said to me, can you pay? 
the rent? And I said, yes, it was like $95 a month. Um, <laughs> he gave me this. He said, nobody, there's no lease. Nobody knows you're here. You, you be quiet and you pay me the money every month on time and the apartment is yours. And literally I got an apartment. Wow. Um, and I lived for years on uh, Thompson between Bleecker and Houston and was in New York in the 70s. And it was just such a glorious time. I didn't have that sort of burden of expectation from parents or family or what that was. But I will say this, and I do tell this story, and it's a true story. When I was about six or seven years old, my mom sort of, she knew that I was going to be gay, and she knew that I had an appreciation for the art, and she knew who I was. And she pulled me, she said to me, I remember, I, I literally remember this, which I don't remember a lot from my childhood, but I remember her saying to me, you're going to be different and don't let anybody tell you it's not fantastic. Wow. And so she set me up to have confidence at a very young age and sort of have survival skills. And I'll tell you, it was the most glorious time to be in New York in the 70s, wanting to be in theater. It was a renaissance of theater. It was the Michael Bennett years. And it was, you know, it was incredible. Um, I didn't answer to anybody. It was post Stonewall. So sort of, you know, that the outing of gay liberation was happening and it was a steamy, crazy, wild, incredible time to cut your teeth and, and figure out who you are. So that's sort of how I started. And then I, and then the eighties hit and the AIDS crisis hit and everybody was started to, you started to lose everybody. And, the city went into a depression at uh, that time, if you remember financially. And mm -hmm. I was, then I was like, I gotta get out of here. I, I was having no success, no luck wanting to be a, a writer. And I moved to LA and then that other story happened. So you mean even, so that's even back the journey, that's an incredible journey. And there's so much, there's so much I want to go back to Like, but even at that young age, as a teenager, you knew you wanted to, to be a writer. You were trying to be a writer by yourself. I, in yeah, a mobster's you, apartment in, in, in the a village. Mob owned, it, wasn't, it was a, I assume it was, you sort of got that indication. Yeah. And, um, you know, I actually, I had like hundreds of jobs, some of which I were not necessarily on the up and up. But uh, one of the things that I did for a living was there was, this was obviously before the internet. There was a magazine, I think it was called Backstage Magazine. And that's where if you were an actor, you found out where auditions were. Mm -hmm. And I and I put an ad in that magazine, and I wrote monologues for actors for auditions and acting classes, and I charged twenty bucks for a monologue, an original monologue for somebody, and that's how I started writing by writing writing monologues for actors through backstage. Wow, you can do five of those in a day, and you've made your rent for the month. I'm telling you, well, not that many people called, but yeah, <laughs> I did that. and I did other things like. I don't know what can I say or not say. Um, is this family friendly or can I? Well, yeah, we'll mark it explicit. Say whatever you'd like. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Well, like I had a job. Um, so back then there were these, they were called, they were 876 sex phone lines. And you would call up and you would talk to somebody on the line. And I was one, I was one of the... A phone sex operator. A phone sex operator from my apartment on Thompson Street. Yes. Did you... Did you as many, uh, I worked at Serendipities for years, with Yellow Fingers. I was an elf at Santa Land um, <laughs> at Macy's for many years. I was a roller skating waiter that didn't know how to roll. It was literally a funny girl. I, was a, I got a job. It was a restaurant across from Lincoln Center 
I forgot the name of it. It's now something else. As a, I got a job as a roller skating waiter, could not lie that I could roller skate, got fired the day that I got hired. Couldn't oh, wow. Um, you know, I had lots of crazy jobs. With the, the phone sex operator, did you do that as, in a, as a male or a female character? Because you know, as, as a male character, but as uh, a gay male, as a gay male. Yeah. Uh, you should talk to Josh Lehman about his story about being a phone sex operator. Because he, he used to, yeah, before, before he, he made it in New York, he was, he used to do it as a female. He would call up and oh, men would talk to him better. and he would be Fiona. So he would do this high pit. Oh. He would pitch his voice up and become Fiona and have phone sex with as a woman with, with other men. Yeah. I'm going to talk to him about that. I yeah. actually was supposed to be, the fantasy was that I was a student in the UCLA dorm. That was little, <laughs> that was what I was supposed to be. Here I am, this, this little Jewish kid. And yeah. So yeah, I was supposed to be a student in the UCLA dorm. It was, I can't believe I'm telling this story, but also you made more money if you were requested. Yeah. And so, and, and the longer you would keep people go on, the more money you make. So there was a whole formula to it. Yeah. Yeah. It was my it, finest hour, but I was pretty good. I, I remember, I remember when I was, I, I'm, I'm 42. So I remember in the eighties and like, even in the early nineties, I think I see like late, late night commercials about some of that yeah. stuff too. Yeah. So I remember yeah. it was like two ninety nine per minute. And yeah, yeah, I, I remember all that. Yeah, the longer you stay on, the more money you make. I get well, it. Sadly, you might have talked to me. Well, you might not have, but no, some I, of you I never called one. Might have talked to me, but yes. That's funny. I okay. I gave you pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, then obviously this all leads to Disney. <laughs> no, it, it does not. Hercules but, and yeah. Shucked. That is the worst yeah. segue I probably have ever done on this podcast. But um, yeah, so now you've got two productions in the works and uh i know like it always takes years and years for this stuff to actually materialize and i remember seeing uh hercules at shakespeare in the park i think it was summer 2019 right it was the summer before the pandemic i believe yeah Yeah. and were you involved with it back then or like how how does this i was involved in it back then i won't go into a lot of detail about that for up for many reasons but yes i was involved in that production um and then as it then moved forward from there i i continued to be involved in it and yes so the 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 evolution of this kind of stuff and i and i know that like even shucked too has sort of been around for a while well i've been working on that show for 12 years no kidding 12 years it started off i got a phone there was a whole other incarnation of it that of which there is nothing left nor which was another show but it's where the seed of the show was born in terms of it it brought together the compo the, the incredible composers that i that are like family to me now we've been they've been on it for 10 years um i got a phone call from my agent asking me if i ever heard of the tv show hee haw right. i was like well yeah i did because again my grandfather loved vaudeville and he used to watch that and I would watch it with him. And and Grand Old Opry owned the rights at the time and said, we want to do a stage version of a Broadway musical. And I said, I, I met on it. And what I said is what I don't want to do is, a, you know, a, 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 an Opryland show or, a, a, you know, a, a, a sit down show, you know, like a variety show. I want to do a book musical. And they let me do it. And we did it. And I met Shane and Shane McAnally and Brandy Clark, the incredible composers who are, you know, very successful in Nashville. And we did a version of the show that didn't really come together. Um, I think 
in trying to be to honor the source material of which there really wasn't any because he Haw was just a skit show of like 10 second skits and characters it never really gelled and so we did a version of it in at dallas theater center and it was a wonderful team and everyone was wonderful and it didn't work and so we let it go and then like three years later we all got on the phone and as the world really started to change and there was just this little seed of an idea that we had talked about during that show and i said let's not give up let's start over and as the world started to become more divided and i really watched the vitriol that was going on we knew that through comedy and their music we could tell a story about division and and because really what chuck is about is i don't know people are like what is this show what it really is it's a show about this small fictional town in, in the heartland of america that grows corn and on every property line there is corn and these huge corn walls have closed them off from the rest of the world and they're terrified of anybody that's different than them that might come in and change their way of life and what happens is the corn starts to die and if the corn starts to die it exposes them to everything they're afraid of and so truly it's about unless you learn to open your heart to people who are different than you you cannot grow so corn is a euphemism for the growth the growth of life and what that means um so it sounds very serious and it is because it's really about um, our, our divided nation and what it means to open yourself up to people who do not think the way you do and have preconceived ideas of what and who you are. And we couch all that with incredible comedy and some of the most glorious music I've ever heard on the stage. And so there's my pitch, but that truly is what it is. And we've been having the best time, the best time. And then along comes Jack O'Brien, who is, you know, the Yoda of theater and uh, all and all these other misanthropes and misfits that we've gathered along the way, and it's this really quirky little original musical. That is that's cool, and it's unusual in this. Unfortunately, I think I will say unusual in this time to have an original musical. Yeah. So much is based on on other material yeah. and and even existing stories. So yeah. I, I I understand that too because I think we're th theater is very expensive and very hard. And I think producers often think that if there is source material, there's sort of a guarantee of ticket sales, or at least an understanding. Like a lot of people are like, I don't know what Chuck is, um, which was always the case back in, you know, in the heyday of musicals in the 30s and 40s. Heyday, I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> so I think, I think, yeah, it's really hard to do original musicals. You're, you're betting on yourself. You're just betting on an idea. Uh, I will also love it because you're not like I, I loved Tootsie and I had the time of my life and I, you know we had the best time. But you, to some degree, you are locked. You are you are you must honor the source material, and so sometimes the tail can wag the dog when that's the case. When you do an original musical, it's whatever you come up with. This that's really uh, I think a fine line and speaks to your talent for being able to create these things because especially right now and i can't wait to see shucked i haven't seen any production of it yet i heard i've only heard great things um in oh, in that you're saying it's about the, the the division of our nation about how we keep like all the things that are bubbling up now uh and and what's going on but broadway as an industry continues to be um and we're getting better but it continues to be ridiculed for for the lack of diversity and for the lack of um originality and for all this stuff so so like when you're approaching something original like this and even 
against something like Hercules that does have existing fan base and Disney is a big yeah. myth in its own right. And it's we crazy. Can, right. I, so, I, I, yeah. so, so how do you, how do you balance that? Uh, uh, um, I guess the, the need for diversity, the need for inclusion, the need for trying not to offend everyone because it's, it's everyone is, is on such high alert right now with the ability, yeah. uh, because comedy is hard and a lot of comics now get in trouble because their old materials don't stand up because it is it leans into racism or stereotypes or whatever it is, right? So right. there's that delicate balance, right? Well, in Shuck, the great thing is, and it's really not, it, it what we get to do in Shuck is sort of hold the mirror up to all the tropes. And so it actually is a great, um, it's a great canvas for which to do that because we literally are saying, you all think you know what somebody who's different than you is. Um, and so what we've done is we've created a town where there is a little bit of everything. So they don't want anything more. They have just enough of everything. They don't want anything more. Um, mm. I think there's, there are, there are, yes, there's a sensitivity now towards everything. It's a very interesting thing because the world has changed and how you mount a show changes. And I think there was, we're, we're very conscious of listening to the voices in the room of uh, letting everybody participate and have a voice. And from the beginning, the understanding that not everybody's going to get what they want, but everybody will be heard. And ultimately what you have to do is, is what's best for the show. You, what, you know, the only God we honor in that room is the show, is the show. That's our, that's our temple. And so, but everybody, you know, we, we make sure everybody's heard and has a, Look, as a writer, I write in a bubble. So sometimes, and often, Shuck, the, the leads of Shuck are two very powerful women, female characters. Well, I'm not a woman. Uh, the same thing, I have these same issues with Tootsie. So I can only write from my own experience, but I can listen to the voices of people who have those experiences and translate that through my comedy. So that's what I try to do. Um, and yeah, it's tough. A lot of our, a lot of, where it's very sensitive. And I think the problem is, that we've stopped learning how to laugh at ourselves. So this sort of goes back to what I was saying and how I grew up and where my comedy was born from, which was learning how to take what was really difficult in my life and laugh at it and make jokes out of it. And I, I think, I hope that we haven't lost sight of the fact that I, I think comedy, my comedy is never mean. I don't, I don't believe in mean comedy, but I believe in comedy that's honest and reflects the world we're living in. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard for people to laugh at themselves or, and I, so that's sort of the line that, that we have to walk. So you're uh, we're winding back. <laughs> it makes total yeah. sense. It makes complete sense. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to, to pull out where this, where your sense of comedy came from, because you were saying it like four or five years old, your mother's working for Ed Sullivan, uh, directly with Ed Sullivan. You're seeing all these amazing people around this great stuff. And then like suffering from depression, which yeah, that generation just doesn't doesn't handle no, they it. They just medicated you. They just medicated just you. You're knocked right. out. My mom would so, like be in bed for weeks at a time. Wow. Um, and I wow. had to become the parent uh, and yeah, take so care you, of my sister. So, and so the, you, yeah, I'm saying you're 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 forced to grow up faster. You're taking care of your twin sister. Your family's on welfare. You're you eventually get removed and sent to an orphanage and have to run away. None of that sounds funny. So when, when you're looking back at like, at what point are you in the middle of this? And you're like, wait a second, I can, I'm a funny guy. How do you, how do you not just like succumb to all that? Um, you know, I think 
there are people out there that are activists and they're born with a with a, a prism for which to look at the world through its disparity and its unfairness and I, I think everybody looks at the world differently i just i'm also this is, i don't want i don't want to i do not navigate in tropes but i'm a jew and jews just comedy is sort of who we are i mean it, <laughs> if you look at the history of comedy there are a lot of very famous you know jewish comedians really it, and i and again i was introduced to vaudeville to to a borscht belt humor which i which I love, and then how I turned the rhythms of those into contemporary comedy. Um, I, I sometimes like to think I carry the torch of a, of two different generations. Um, uh, but but I don't know. I got you know how I did it. Luck. There there by the grace of God, I was able to just. A lot of the kids that I grew up with never survived. They did not. They were not able to survive that. I just was able to. I find the humor in it and I don't know how, and I don't know, maybe I don't want to even know, but I think that's, that's how you do it. And the task the man on the table was at one point I said, I can, I can, I can make a living doing this. <laughs> I bet, I bet I could get paid for this because I'm making people laugh. Um, and I, I don't know, just sort of, it just sort of happened. Um, uh, yeah, that was it. Have you ever uh, thought I mean, about writing, writing your story as a show, I, as a musical? Literally everybody asks for that. Yeah, I have. I don't know how I don't I, it, I think sometimes I think so I'm able to sit here and talk about it because I can be a little detached from it but if I actually sit and write it I'm gonna have to deal with all those feelings I've never dealt with and then maybe what happens with the comedy go then a comedy goes away because I'm not bitter anymore <laughs> like yeah the com your comedy works because you're bitter about it yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess yeah um, yeah so Hercules now at paper mill um is, it's another it's another production and there's always like when's this coming to broadway when's this coming to broadway right wow. so i know like given the powerhouse of disney behind all of this and the creative team involved is there is that still on that path and what's different about this paper mill production versus what i saw at shakespeare in the park versus any previous readings well um this is the zeus honest truth as we say in hercules mm -hmm. um they don't tell us what the next version of it is. I don't know if it's going to Broadway. I don't know. We do not know. We get through this and then they decide. So they don't tell us and and they tell us and we sort of don't, we're told not to ask. Um, I think, you know, uh, Tom Schumacher, who's the president of the theatrical is, a, is really a genius at knowing when to bring things in, where to send things, how to do it. And so we sort of leave it to him. So I don't know what the next version of it is. Um, what's different about it, you know, Hercules in the park, the idea for all of this came from our incredible director, Lear de Bessonet, who, as you know, just had a real great success with Into the Woods on Broadway last season. Um, and with this season, it was this season. Um, this and season, yeah. she, was, she was working with the public works at the public theater, which is every year they do a production at the Delacorte in Central Park that includes people from all walks of life to come up and be on stage and be part of the production. So nurses and, and sanitation workers and teachers and, and it was a glorious thing. And it was, it was a pageant. It was outdoors. It was during the summer. It was Central Park. Um, it was all those things. And I think wisely what Leah realized is you can't replicate that. You can't replicate 200 civilians on stage. That this was now going to be 
a legitimate musical in a very different way. And so making the transition from that to this is, is what I think is different. It's still the message. She has a very clear message of what she wanted in this show and what Hercules meant to her about community and about how we're stronger together than as an individual about what heroism is. And so um, I think that's sort of what, where the difference is. And things play very differently in, in the theater inside and with professional actors. And so that's sort of the difference, but it was a, the, the Park Center Grit started, was, was a great template with where to begin. We're gonna take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. I love the production because uh, it gets so many people involved and being outside. Yeah, you're right. It does have like a different, a literal and metaphorical it's a whole atmosphere. Different vibe. It's a, yeah. 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 So let's um, wrap up here. Cause I know you are joining us on your lunch break from some unknown rehearsal. And so we, we got to get you out, but I want to wrap up with three closing questions. I ask everybody on the episode. Okay. The first one, just very simply is what motivates you. Um, fear. <laughs> <laughs> That's an honest yeah, answer. Really fear. I'm always, look at, honestly, you know, I'm always afraid. Oh my God, I'm gonna, they're going to fire me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, fear and, is real. And, and laughter. Truly, I would say both those things. I love laughter. I love being able to make people laugh. I, I think, it, I mean, I hear, you know, there are singers out there that I wish to God I could sing like that and actors that I could never do what they do. But I, for some reason, was given the gift of, of making people laugh, and and that motivates me. Mm, okay. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path? Uh, go vegan earlier to my <laughs> younger self. Um, <laughs> uh, I, this is the advice I always give to, to people who are younger: follow your instincts. A lot of people are going to try to tell you a lot of things. Listen wisely know the source of what who they are and why they're saying it and follow your follow your instincts because that's all you have is your instinct hmm. all right if you could only see one show for the rest of your life but you can see it as many <sighs> times as you want what would you see oh my god i can't answer that i mean I'm, I, I, uh, for the rest of my life um well i don't know it would be a comedy um <laughs> Shucks, good answer. Only because hopefully, because then I'd be making money off it and it's playing out. <laughs> and be making people laugh, and you wouldn't have I'd fear of losing, uh, of being fired. So it, it hits everything. Yeah. There you go. Cool. Exactly. So where can we find you online? Uh, do you do social media? Are you on the on the Instas? I am, the tick yeah, I'm on Instagram. I don't do the TikToks. I watch them, but I don't do it. Um, I don't love being in front of the camera. Um, I'm on Instagram. Rhorn one is my is my thing. Rhorn one, the number one. Um, and I'm on Facebook, but I never go there. And I'm not a big social media person, but I do do Instagram. That's my that's my jam. Love it, love it. You can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram, the theater. I'm Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I don't know what I'm doing on any of them. Yeah, but, you know, good whatever. for you. Uh, it's there um leave a rating review wherever you are listening now thank you to jukebox the ghost for intro and outro music and robert horn thank you this has been such a thank fun episode i love I it really enjoyed it take a deep breath make the world a little colorful 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.